Kings chapter 11, verse number 2. And I don't, I don't know if I'll be long, very long this evening. You know, somebody told me when I was just a young preacher, they said, I believe it was Brother Jerry Jones, he said, if you can't be a good preacher, be a short one, and they'll love you just the same. <laughs> so maybe even more. <laughs> so I have endeavored to do that. <laughs> as best as I can. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. So your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I want to talk to you for just a few minutes this evening on this title, Getting Ready for a Wedding. How many here have ever gotten ready for a wedding? How many remember what it's like, ladies, to get ready for a wedding? Now, if you're a guy, it takes you about nine and a half minutes. But that, maybe ten, if you're a little bit of a primper. But women, not so much. It might take them days, maybe even weeks to get ready or months to get ready for a wedding. Uh, but it was really no different in biblical times. So Paul in this passage talks about being espoused. Now, I want to explain from a Hebrew mindset what this word espousal means. To be espoused means that the marriage was not yet physically consummated, but the espousal was itself a binding contract that could be broken only by a formal divorce. So it wasn't marriage. And you know, we would say, well, it's like an engagement. No, it's not like an engagement because you can break it off an engagement. You know, I mean, I was going to say with, with, very, with very little fallout, saving for the fact that if you've already paid for the wedding, that's the fallout. Um, or maybe your, maybe your husband's, your future husband's family has paid for the wedding, and then you will be the fallout. <laughs> um, but, but whenever you were espoused, legally espoused, okay, it, it means that, that you were promised to this person. And, and the only way that could be broken was by a legal divorce. It was a contract to be married, a promise. Sometimes children in Hebrew culture and others as young as eight or ten would be espoused or betrothed to each other by their families. And then when the time came at 18 for women and 20 for men, the actual wedding would usually take place. When a betrothal took place, only a legal divorce could break that contract. So the Apostle Paul said that the church has been betrothed or promised to Christ. Now, obviously, that's an illusion that speaks of the love the church should have toward Christ, as the love and devotion of an espoused wife to her future husband. Paul said that the church is espoused as a chaste virgin. There is a strong illusion that's drawn from the book of Leviticus, chapter 21, and verse 14, that details. The specifications for when a high priest would choose a wife. It says, a widow or a divorced woman or profane or a harlot, these shall he not take. 
but he shall take a virgin of his own people to wife. So the high priest could not marry anyone that was not a pure virgin. And so Christ, as our high priest, as you know, that's New Testament language. He's our high priest, is coming after a church that is like a pure virgin in her love and devotion to the Lord. How many believe that tonight? And so Ephesians 5 and verse 27 says it like this, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without any kind of blemish whatsoever. In another place, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul said it again uh, in very similar language. He said, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now I want to say this. He doesn't say perfect in behavior, but he said perfect in Christ. And truly, that is the only way to, to be perfect, is to be walking in the power of the Spirit of God. And not walking in the flesh, especially in the hour that we live in, we have to guard everything that we do, the things that we think constantly. There has to be a guard about us. But one day, soon and very soon, and from the looks of the condition of the world, it can't possibly be very long where Jesus is going to come back for his church. Now, we don't know when precisely. I remember in 1988, somebody wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1988. And, you know, that was because Israel became a nation in 1948. And, and, and Jesus said in Mark 13 and other passages that this generation shall not pass to all of these things be fulfilled. So they, they believed that that meant when Israel became a nation, that that generation would not pass away. A generation in biblical times is 40 years. So you can do the math, 1948 to 1988. So Jesus had to come in 1988, September, they said. I remember churches having all night prayer meetings. This is a true story. <laughs> People would pray all night and, you know, it didn't get people to do a whole lot of good except for people that weren't paying their tithes, got caught up in their tithes in the month of September. And then once 1989 rolled around, they fell behind again. But at least for a while, they were safe. We don't know when Jesus is going to come. And all we can do is it's fun to speculate. It's fun and nice to read all the magazines and books and, you know, do, you know documentaries, etc. That's fine. But nobody knows when he's going to come in, when he's going to come. Jesus said, no man knows the day nor the hour. But he did spend a lot of time telling us the seasons, the season of his return. For example, Jesus warned us that many deceivers would come and some would come in his name. That means that some uh, would come and they would say, I'm saved, I'm spirit filled. And yet they would sow discord and disunity in the body. He said the time of his return would be during a season fraught with wars and hatred. And oh man, does that ever describe our generation? We thought it described our generation in the 80s and 90s. We had no idea what hatred even was. And I, I can't imagine if God tarries another 30 or 40 years, what it must would be like then. He said men would be hating and killing one another, brother against brother. I interpret that to mean civil wars. 
He said it will be a time of pestilence, which, which we would interpret as pandemics. As you know, we just got through a pandemic and famines. It would be a time of many false religions that would be spreading all throughout the world. And it would be a time when the love of many would wax cold. Now, most of the signs of Jesus' return appear to be things that are happening outside of the church. In other words, like if Jesus gave 100 signs of his coming back, 99 of them were things that were directly related to things happening outside of the church and mostly outside of the church's control. Except for one thing where he describes not the state of the world, but the state of the church when he said the love of many would wax cold because of iniquity. When love waxes cold, devotion dwindles away. Worship is a duty. Living godly is a burden and compromises are made. Standards are let down and doctrines are let loose. And things that people used to believe with all of their heart, no longer do they believe them. Things that were wept over at altars and shouted at during worship services. Things that, you know, suddenly they become burdensome and people begin to walk backwards. It reminds me of the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 when Jesus said unto the angel of the church of Ephesus, write these things, saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how you canst not bear them that are evil. And you've tried them which say they're apostles and are not and have found them to be liars and hast borne and hast had patience and for my name's sake have labored and have not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. Jesus commended them for multiple things. First, he said, I want to commend you for your good works. You're doing a lot of service to my kingdom. It seems like the church at Ephesus was a busy church. And they weren't just you know, busy doing their own thing, but they were busy working for the kingdom of God. He said, I commend you for your good works. Secondly, he said, I commend you for your labor in the kingdom of God. He went on to say, you've got patience. He expressly mentioned patience, which in the book of Revelation probably has more to do with patience in tribulation and in martyrdom more than anything else. But then he said, your love for the truth. Uh, he commended them, their love for the truth to the point where they could not stand those who taught false doctrines. But then he said, nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. Jesus goes on in his warning in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from whence you are fallen and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. I believe that because their love had waxed cold, their candle had gone out. Amen. Jesus first said, your love has grown cold, and because your love has grown cold, your candlestick has been snuffed out. Because your love for the Lord is what makes you burn brightly for Jesus in a very dark world. It further reminds me of the parable of the ten virgins. I think that everybody knows this story from Matthew chapter 25. There were ten virgins, five were wise and five were foolish. And they were all instructed to keep oil in their lamps and wait for the bridegroom to come. 
And at midnight there was a cry that was made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And the five virgins that had stayed awake during the long night and long into the evening hours went out because they had oil in their lamps, but the five that were foolish had no oil, and so they were left behind. And let me tell you that I believe when Jesus comes back, he's coming after a church that's red hot and on fire for the Lord, but there will be some who will be left behind. And you do not want to be left behind in that day, my friend. We live in a dark world that's so easy to get caught up in our own lives. It's so easy to get sidetracked. It's so easy to be busy working for the Lord that we fall out of love with him. You may say, well, Pastor Foster, I'm busy working for Jesus. I'm involved in this many ministries. I might even be busy every single night of the week. But do you love prayer? Do you love to spend time in the word of God? Do you love to worship? Does your heart hunger after the things of God? Or has those things become monotonous and boring to you? Are we like the Ephesus church who was commended for their works, but reprimanded because of their lack of love? Not their service. Not their service. Not the works that they were doing for the kingdom of God. Not their doctrine that was correct. But he said, all of those things are good, but you have left off your first love. And you know, when you think of a bride-to-be, she is just waiting on that special day. She's counting the days, counting the hours, and even the very minutes until she can walk down the aisle with the love of her life and say, I do. She's preparing and planning. She's anxious and nervous, but excited all at the same time. When she speaks of her future spouse, she gets happy and glows with excitement. She'll spend many days or weeks shopping for the right wedding dress, trying on one right after the other until she finds that perfect one that she had always dreamed of, that princess wedding. Once it's bought, it'll be perfectly tailored to her figure, whatever that may be. Then it'll be discreetly put in a plastic bag and hung carefully inside a closet and kept very safe. During the subsequent weeks and and days and possibly months before the wedding, countless times she'll open those closet doors and gaze intently and longingly on that wedding dress, imagining her walking down the aisle, her love awaiting her there at that altar. Maybe, perhaps, she'll try it on for her mother and a few other close, intimate friends because it's her day, and she's waiting. She's in love, and she's waiting for that day. And it's a state of that's very similar to how Solomon wrote in Song of Solomon 2, verse 5, when he said, Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. Or as the new translation, the NLT translates it, I am weak with love. In other words, he makes me weak in the knees. It's a state of intense love and anticipation of that great day when they'll be reunited in holy matrimony and when at last. And that's the state of mind that Paul had in mind when he wrote, I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But we're living in our posh, comfortable homes and driving our nice luxury vehicles and working our jobs and raising our kids and doing so much. Make sure that you don't fall out of love for the master while you're doing all of those things. 
Make sure you don't love, make sure you love to spend time with him in prayer. Make sure you love to read his word and study it and to gaze intently, deeply at him in worship, just like that spouse uh, would wait for her perfect wedding day. Because one day soon he's coming back and he's coming after a bride that's pure and has made herself ready. You know, God's word is filled with commands for us to be looking for his return. Not just looking for or toward the signs, but looking for him in the clouds. Now, there's a difference. Now, we, we read all the signs Jesus wrote about in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke, I think it was 23, 24, and various, various things all throughout the, the New Testament. Paul wrote about them in 2 Thessalonians. There's multiple mentioned in the book of Timothy in a couple of spots. And we, we, we can look around at all those signs and we can become infatuated with studying them and look at biblical prophecy and all those things. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what we ought to be looking for is not just the signs, but looking for him. Titus 2 and verse 12, he said this, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteous and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. First Corinthians, Paul said, chapter 1, verse 7, So that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, he said, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. Are you looking for that blessed day? We ought not to just be looking for the signs as much as his appearing, because soon and very soon we are going to see the king. But he's not coming after a people who has not made herself ready. He's not coming after people who is not walking in holiness and sanctification. Don't be deceived into thinking that because you attend a church that somehow you're ready to go. That because you attend a church even every Wednesday uh, evening and Sunday afternoon, that because you attend services that that's a box that's checked and you're good to go. But there is preparation that has to come every single day because we are preparing for a wedding. I want to make a statement here that I'm going to elaborate on, and it's this. Worldliness is the silent killer in many homes. So many homes. We used to hear a lot about worldliness growing up. We don't really hear that word much anymore thrown around. But worldliness is a silent killer in so many homes. Atmospheres are created in your home. As a matter of fact, right now. Right this very second, there is a spiritual atmosphere in your home. Whether you set out to create that atmosphere or whether you did not, it is absolutely there. There is a spiritual, and let me just say this, to raise spiritually healthy kids, you have to have a spiritually healthy atmosphere in your home. And that goes from the things that they see in here and the things that they don't see in here. You have to get up in the morning and you've got to pray. Let your kids hear you cry out to God. Let them see you pray. Let them know if, if you're, 
if, if your kids are blessed enough to have a mom and a dad, then it ought to be the father that gets up in the morning and prays for his family. And it ought to be the mother that does the same thing. Together they pray. That's how you raise healthy kids that grow up to love God with all their hearts and teach Bible studies and, and strive to be used in the kingdom of God. Is you got to create an atmosphere. But if you create a worldly atmosphere, then they're not going to have any taste for the, for the kingdom of God at all. And switching churches isn't going to help any because the atmosphere and the hunger that they get comes from the atmosphere that they get in your house. When you nurse a grudge or wounded feelings, you allow bitterness to take root. When you don't flee youthful lusts, you create an atmosphere. And let me tell you this, carnality has a price. It may not come to collect for a very long time, but eventually it will come to collect. The things you allow, the things you watch, the things you listen to, carnality, my friend, has a price. We all have a side that is estranged from God. Our fleshly nature is at war with God. Your fleshly nature is at war with God. Your fleshly nature is the enemy of God. And there are so many verses that we could cite to list that truth. But your, your fleshly nature wars against the will of God and it wars against your soul. When you feed it or you allow it to rule or be a stronger force than the spirit that you follow, that is called carnality and it's the direct opposite of walking in the spirit. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 with me for just a moment. This is about King David, a very popular passage. I'm sure you have read it or heard about it before. 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 1, and it came to pass after the year was expired. At the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Reba. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Right now we know David's in trouble. Because at a time when kings go out to battle, what was he doing? He was staying at home. Verse 2, and it came to pass in the evening time. Everybody say, in the evening. That David rose from off his bed. And walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent inquired after the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So whenever I read this passage, a couple of things jump out at me. First of all, why was David taking a nap in the middle of the afternoon? at a time when kings go out to battle? What was he doing just casually sleeping and, and not, not being out there now? Had David been where he was supposed to have been, which was leading his people into battle, then we wouldn't be reading about David's greatest mistake. You, you know what happens next. He went and he takes Bathsheba and he commits adultery. She gets pregnant to cover it up. He ends up murdering her husband, Uriah. So that was the first thing that struck out. But there's another thing as I began to read this text over the past couple weeks. Why was he just walking on the roof of his house? Full well knowing he'd likely see something he should not have seen. Now, to be fair to Bathsheba, because she kind of gets the bad end of the stick here. 
I actually looked at this passage. There's nothing in the passage to indicate that, that it was rape. Nothing. The Bible never uses the word rape. Never used any of that. But it doesn't say that she came willingly either. It says David sent his servants and took her. So you can read into that whatever you want to read into that. I'll just leave that alone. But furthermore, her taking a bath, this was likely her purification bath that she would have to take once a month after, after a woman would, would go through her cycle. And under the Mosaic law, she was to bathe. And so that was her ritual purification bath. So Bathsheba was doing her best to live for God. Her husband was away at, was away at war and she was probably very likely worried about him. And here comes this king on the roof of his house looking around and just happened to spy a woman. The Bible doesn't describe many women as beautiful and it describes very other few women as very beautiful. But Bathsheba, scripture says, she was a head turner. <laughs> she was a traffic stopper. Okay? And he was just walking on the roof of his house. And let me tell you this. When you're not guarding where you're going and what you're looking at, the enemy is, is creeping in to just jump on you. Let me tell you this. Social media creators are not concerned about you going to heaven. Facebook Twitter, which is called X or whatever it's called now, Instagram, all of these things. I know people, again, I'm not preaching against any of these things, but there's people that just, they just mindlessly scroll. It's like David taking a, a casual walk on the roof of his house. When you're just mindlessly scrolling for hours at a time, you have no control over what you're going to see. Any more than David had control over what he was going to see walking on the roof of his house, he probably knew what he would see. That's my guess, because this was, this was a patio. This wasn't the first time he had been there. And let me tell you, there are some places that you just don't need to go. And there are some things that you just don't need to do. There are some times you don't need to do those things. Because it's not that that in itself is a sin, but you're giving place to the devil. You're allowing the devil a place for temptation to creep into your life. So you've got to build walls. He was creating an atmosphere in his home and inviting unwanted guests into his house during that time. And that single moment of failure led to this one later on in 2 Samuel chapter 18. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. <clears throat> and as he went, thus he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Would God I had died for thee, oh Absalom, my son, my son. And if you've ever suffered the loss of a son or, or a child, then you know the pain that comes with that. But King David had to watch his son, his beautiful son Absalom. Absalom, whose name means father of peace, by the way. It's an interesting name, considering how he died. Hanging by his hair from an oak tree with multiple stab wounds as the men of Joab, there were, I think the Bible says there was like 10 men who gathered around him as he, as he was hanging there from the oak tree by his hair. And 10 men gathered around him and got their knives and spears and they just one at a time until he stopped moving. A bloody sight. And David had to go and watch. And David's mind must have remembered after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and after he spent almost a year 
and didn't tell anybody. And the prophet Nathan came to him and he told him that parable. And, and, and King David was so in, incensed, you know, at that parable. And he said, man, we're going to find the man that did this. We're going to kill him. And Nathan said, thou art the man. God's put away your iniquity, but he is going to punish you. The sword shall never leave your house. David suffered the loss of an infant, the very infant that came as a result of that adulterous affair. And later on, he would suffer the death of Absalom and many other horrible, terrible tragedies that came into his life. That single moment of David's weakness led to betrayal by his most cherished son, son Absalom, and rape and incest and even murder, and eventually Absalom himself losing his life and probably his own soul. And the single greatest moment of, pains, of pain in David's life came from a single moment of very brief carnality. And I will say this, we cannot afford to have seasons of carnality in us. We cannot afford tonight or any other night to have a season where we are slacking up on prayer or slacking up in our Bible reading or slacking up in our spiritual disciplines because the enemy is waiting at the door. Remember what God told Cain. Whenever Cain was angry that Abel, his brother, had a more excellent sacrifice and Cain went to God, said, what's going on, God? And God said, well, I'll accept your sacrifice, too. God gave him a chance. You can make this right. You can go offer a sacrifice, too. But God told Cain, I know what's in your heart. And sin and wickedness is crouching at the door. And don't you ever think that because you're so busy for the kingdom of God and you do so many things for the church that the devil himself isn't waiting behind the corner just to jump on you the first chance he gets when you let your guard down. And I'm not trying to scare anybody, but I'm just telling you the reality. We are at war tonight and the war is for your soul. There is a heaven to gain and an eternity in a lake of fire to shun. And we cannot afford. In one place, Paul said, I want you to be sure that you work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Because Pastor Gary and Pastor Gavin and Pastor Chad and, and, and all the other leaders of the church is not going to be standing by you on Judgment Day. It's going to be you face to face with Jesus Christ, my friend. And then what was done in the secret is going to be shouted from the mountaintop. And everything that you thought you got away with is got everything that's unrepented in your life, everything that you haven't put under the blood, every right that you ever, every wrong that you ever did that wasn't made right, everything is is all going to be blasted for all to see. And the scriptures declare it. And later on, when the kingdom split into the kingdom of Israel, into northern kingdom and southern kingdom, it was the result of the son of David and Bathsheba's child Solomon not keeping the laws of God. Someone once said it like this, when the oak tree falls, so do the little firs. Men we have to be men of God, both in public and in private places, in all things. We have to be godly men of God. The same standard you may hold Pastor Gary to is the same standard we ought to keep. The same standard you hold any leader to at any point in your life is the same standard that we ourselves ought to strive to have because godliness and holiness, without holiness, no man is going to see the Lord because I am preparing for a wedding day and it's going to come like a thief in the night.
It's sad when married people act single or flirtatious. You ever seen a married woman act flirtatious? And, and it's like, why are you even married? Now, if you don't want to be married, just stay single. It's that simple. But once you enter into that covenant, and let me tell you, baptism is a covenant you make with Christ. It's a covenant as binding spiritually as a wedding, as a wedding day. It is a covenant. Just as whenever I got married to Tanya, I vowed before God that I would give myself to her until death do us part. And so when you got, when you repented and you got baptized into the name of Jesus, you weren't saying, God, I'm going to put myself on this layaway plan. I'll give myself 80% here and I'll give this up, you know, on down the road at some point. No, 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 my friend, when you got baptized in that precious name of Jesus, you said, I am all yours, God, 100%. It's all of me. And there might be things that you may not have understood at that point and things that God will lead you to get up, to give up later on down the road. But as far as you knew, you were giving a 100% of yourself to the kingdom of God and all of your heart to the Lord without any reservation. But we got some Christians who are spiritually married, who have entered a covenant, but they act single. And James had a word for that. In James chapter 4, he said, You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is the enemy, is enmity with God. We're preparing for a wedding day. Let us remember in all of our building the kingdom of God and all of the excitement of things that are going to happen very soon and all of the doors that God is going to open for us and all the things that God is going to do for us, let us never forget that we are preparing for a wedding day and we can be busy working for the kingdom of God and walking in his will, even in our ministry and still lose our soul because we must be prepared. It's a covenant. Revelation 18, the Bible says, I'm almost done now. Bible says, and the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her. This is Babylon after Babylon falls. For no man buys their merchandise anymore. Watch what they're weeping for. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, thionine wood, all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood, brass, iron, marble, Cinnamon odors, ointments, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, beasts, and sheep, horses, chariots, slaves. And what's the last thing they were weeping over? Souls of men. Look at all the souls that they wept over. Or look at all the things that they wept over. And the last thing that they wept over were the souls of men. Because when people begin to fall out of love with Jesus, they fall out of love with a lost world. It's hard and nearly impossible to have the heart and passion of Jesus for a lost world if you've got a divided heart. When you fall out of love with the Lord, then lost people going to hell does not bother you any longer. But we are preparing for a wedding day. We have to have the wedding garment on. At all times, let's stand to our feet. There's going to come a day very soon when, like Paul said to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. 
And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You know, people have often tried to guess, what's he going to shout when he comes back? What's Jesus going to shout? You can't find that many things Jesus shouted about or shouted at in Scripture. He shouted against sin. He shouted against Jerusalem when he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a hen, gathers in her bird under her wings, but you would not. But another time he shouted is when he said, Lazarus, come forth. And considering that when he comes back, the dead in Christ are going to rise. Maybe he's going to say, come forth. And the dead in Christ are going to rise. And in, in, in the quicker than a blink of an eye, it's the dead are going to get up. The graves are going to burst open in a moment. And, and then as soon as that happens, no sooner have that, will that have happened than we who, are, who remain, we who remain, who are walking in the Spirit, are going to be instantly changed. This body is going to be instantly changed and made like unto His glorious body. And He's coming after people not just looking for the signs, but every day getting up and saying, this could be the day He comes back. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but I want to have the wedding garment on. I want to live holy. I want to live right. I want to watch the things that I watch. I want to make sure that I'm monitoring everything. I don't want my iPhone or my iPad to send me to hell. I want to to be walking in the power of the Holy Ghost. I'm going to lead my kids in holiness and righteousness. Why? Because I'm preparing for a wedding day. And it's going to come very soon. Let's lift our hands to the Lord right now. Oh, Jesus, help us today, God, to be ready for that great day when you come back, God. Help us to be on guard everything, God. Help us to be walking, Lord, in the power of the Holy Ghost, God. To be walking in holiness and righteousness, God. To not just be busy working for the kingdom, Lord. But help us to have some time every morning where we get up and we pray and we commune with you, God. God, and we're not asking for anything. We're just laying at your feet, letting you take things out of our heart and our spirits that are not right. Oh, God, wash us, wash our minds, wash our spirits, God. If there's bitterness or aught that we have against anybody, wash that from our hearts, God. Let us be ready for because we know you're coming back for a people who has made herself ready. Amen. Why don't you find a place to talk to God tonight? Can be there in your chair. Can be here at the altar up front. It can be anywhere. Just I want everybody before they leave tonight to take a few moments and just let God talk to your heart. Jesus.